0: All right, all right. The Mumford and Sons if you are wondering why we played that song in church, it's probably not the first time you've wondered that here at Flatirons, uh, but just hold on a little bit. I think it'll all make sense in a little bit. Uh, like Jim said in the video, my name's Jesse. I'm the campus pastor at our uh, West Campus, and uh, a lot of times if I see people from Lafayette or if I'm back at the Lafayette campus on a Saturday night, people will ask how West is going, so I just want to tell you that since we opened a year and a half ago, we've had, I think it's over 700 families who are new to either campus of Flatirons walk in our doors and check their kids and kids ministry, and we baptized 136 people over the last year and a half, which is just unbelievable, you know, like God's been so good up there. And I, things are growing, things have been really, really good, but I just want to thank everybody at the Lafayette campus. Thank you for the sacrifices that you guys have made. Thank you for the way that you guys have have really enabled us to go up the hill and share the gospel with people who have never heard it before. It's just really, really awesome, so thank you so much. As Jim and Scott, they were telling me that this series is going to be called Wrestling with God. Uh, The first thing I thought of, it wasn't my own uh, struggle with, with God. The first thing I thought of was growing up in Jim's youth group, we had this thing at camp called Fight Club. And it was as awesome as it sounds, you know? Like, you guys know Jim, that does not surprise anyone in this room. Um, But but all I can tell you is it's awesome. That's the only thing I can tell you about Fight Club, because you guys know the first rule of Fight Club, right? Like, you don't talk about Fight Club. And and, and I'm not sure the statute of limitations has worn off yet, okay? And Jim was like, Jesse, you cannot share that story from stage. So I'm like, all right, I won't, I won't. So, but I I think that fighting, I think that wrestling, it's a really good metaphor for the way that we interact with God. Because here's the thing for me, there are times that that, uh, God and I, we're not on the same page. There are times where I disagree, times that I'm frustrated with him. And if my faith, if my relationship with God, if it's not something that's worth fighting for, if it's not something that's worth wrestling through, then how much is it really worth? And and so when Jim and Scott, they told me the series is going to be wrestling with God, I thought I can relate to that. I mean, I've been there. And so, what I want to do this morning is I just want to kind of tell you about what the last few years of my life looked like. And, and I want to start off by asking you the same question that I was asking myself three months ago. What do you do when you're a pastor and you're pretty sure you don't believe in God anymore? Um, that was my question. Here's the deal my whole life, my, my, my whole life. I've wanted to be a pastor, okay? Like, when, 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 I was, when I was growing up, I was in kindergarten, and for what do you want to be when you grow up dress-up day, I dressed up like a preacher, okay? Like, that meant I dressed up as pretentious and obnoxious as possible and went around like condemning people, you know, like that. That's what, that's what a preacher was to me. But like, that, I, was in, I was in Kentucky, it was the 80s, that's what I did. I wanted to be a preacher, when I, when I was six, I would wake up at uh, five, uh, 4.30 in the morning, and we didn't have cable, so this is when just the colored lines are on the screen, and that's it. And I would watch the colored lines on the screen until my favorite show came on, and my favorite show came on at 5 o'clock, and it was a preacher's show called the Kenneth Copeland Show. <laughs> okay, like that's my, and I think one person last night shouted out like, woo, and I said Kenneth Copeland. It makes me love Flatiron so much that out of thousands and thousands of people, only one person knows who that is You know, that is a good thing Like, he's the type of preacher that he, he, If you donate $50 And you would touch the area of the screen that he's touching You'd be healed of your disease Like, that's the type of, type of guy this, this guy was and So maybe not the best thing for a six-year-old to be watching But, I mean, what else are you supposed to do before Netflix comes out? I mean, that, that was my life I remember being in Jim's youth group And in freshman year, I had this clear feeling Like I should spend my life in full-time ministry I, I did, and so all throughout high school, I would help with anything that I could in the youth group. I was trying to learn what it's like to be in, in full-time ministry, getting to be a leader in youth group. When I was a, a junior, I entered this, uh, uh, this competition called the North American Christian Convention Teen Preaching Competition. Yes, these things exist, okay? Like, remember, Kentucky. But I, I won this preaching competition. They actually gave me a huge trophy for it <laughs> and, I just sit here and I'm like, what in the world? Like, And, and the preacher here, obviously he's wearing a suit, because that's what preachers do, and he's he's got his pulpit, and he's got one hand up in the air, but the other he's slamming down on the pulpit, because that's what preachers do, you know? I just thought it was ridiculous, and so... Can you just take this and throw this away for me? You know, like, let's just, well, we're done with that. We don't need that any, anymore. I know you're thinking, there's something seriously wrong with this guy right now. Why is he here? I mean, God is, God, God's been good to me. After, um, after high school and college and a decade of youth ministry, I ended up here at Flatirons. Honestly, this is like a dream come true to me. I am in a state that I just absolutely love. I am at my favorite church in the world, and I get to pastor a campus full of people that I just love so much, and they are so good to me. I honestly, I could not ask for a better life. But what do you do when in the middle of that, you're you're still pretty sure that you don't believe in God anymore? Now, what I want to do is I want to press pause right here, and we're going to come back to it. I I want to tell you a little bit more of how that played out in my life. But right now, I want to spend a little bit of time on this person from the Bible that as I was reflecting over the last few years, I felt a lot of camaraderie with him. And that's the apostle Peter. Here's a little background on Peter. Peter grew up like all good Jewish boys, and he went to rabbi school. And then when he went to rabbi school, he finished. They kind of have like a draft where all the rabbis get together, and they pick the the students that they want to come be their disciples and follow them. And so all the students get picked, except Peter doesn't. He he goes undrafted. And so what that means for him is he's going to go back to being a fisherman like his dad was. And back then, working with animals was one of the worst things that you could do with your life. But that's what he's going to do for the rest of his life. Then along comes Jesus, and he was like a rabbi, but but he was also he was, he was different. And, and he tells Peter, Hey, hey, I want you to follow me. Come be one of my disciples. And so what we're gonna do today is we're gonna look at a few different moments in Peter's life, and we're gonna start with a story in, in one of the books called the Book of Mark. And it's gonna be in chapter eight. If you wanna turn there, we've got free Bibles in the back. If you want to grab one, it'll also be up on the screens. But Jesus and the disciples, they've kind of been traveling around Israel. And Jesus has been teaching and healing people. But there's kind of this mystery around who Jesus was and what he came to do. I think if, if we've read the Bible, or if, you, if you've even come to church one time, you have a, a basic understanding of who Jesus is, you know, what he came to do, and how the whole story ends. But at this point, the people who are following Jesus around, they have no idea. All they know is he's a good teacher, and he's, he's a great healer. And so look at this conversation in Mark 8, starting in verse 27. It said, And Jesus went with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him uh, John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. So people from all over the country are talking about Jesus because he, he was like their rabbis, he was like their teachers and their priests, but he was also different. There was something uh, really great about him, and so th- they didn't have a category for him. And so what they started doing is they started saying they made comparisons. It's like that great prophet John the Baptist, or it's like that great Old Testament prophet, the prophet Elijah that Scott talked about two weeks ago. People realized there was something different about Jesus, Then look what Jesus says in the next verse, verse 29, it said, and he asked them, and Jesus asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you're the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Now, I think this is a big moment for Peter. I imagine that when Jesus asked this question, all the other disciples kind of step back like this because they're like, we don't want to have to give an answer, but, but Peter is a little bit slow, okay? And he's still standing there, and he, he probably looks back, and all the other disciples are kind of standing there, and Jesus is looking at him, waiting for an answer, and he's like, you're the Christ. You're, you're the Messiah, You're the one who's going to lead us out of Roman oppression. You're the one who's going to make the nation of Israel relevant again. You're going to be king. And immediately, Jesus tells all the men, tells all the disciples that they shouldn't tell anybody that. It's not because Peter was wrong, but it's because Jesus knows that if the people who are following him, if they think that he's the Messiah, they're going to immediately want to start a revolt behind him, and they're going to try to make him king. But what Jesus knows, Jesus knows that uh, he's got a deeper understanding of what it means to be the Messiah. Look at how he explains it in verse 31. He said, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. Now, here's the thing for us. Uh, hindsight's twenty-twenty. For us, for all of us who, who, who understand the, the, kind of the Bible and what happened here, it's easy for us to understand that for, for Jesus to be the Messiah, he's going to have to be re- rejected by the religious authorities. He's going to have to suffer, die, and then rise again. But back then, that's a completely new, new concept. They had no context for that. For them, the Messiah would lead the Israelites to overthrow the Roman government in that captivity and would become king. And Jesus is explaining to them for the first time that instead he's going to be rejected, he's going to suffer, and he's going to die. Well, needless to say, Peter, Peter is not having that. That does not line up with what he understands. What Jesus is talking about, that doesn't line up with what the Messiah is supposed to do. The Messiah is supposed to win, not lose. And so Peter's got to say something. And so look what he does next. Verse 32, and, and Peter took him aside and he began to rebuke him. So Peter takes Jesus aside and starts to lay into him. No, Jesus, that's not what you're going to do. The Messiah is not supposed to do this. And so for me, it takes some boldness, you know, for for Peter to call out the guy that he just called the Christ. But secondly, what we're going to find out, Peter's going to find this out personally, you don't rebuke Jesus, okay? It just doesn't go well for you, you know? It's just never a, a good idea. Verse 33 He said, but Jesus turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter. And he said, get behind me, Satan. For you are setting your mind on the things of God, not, uh, not on the things of God, but on the things of man. This makes me think of a few things. First of all, for Peter, this is a bad, bad day. You know, brother should have just quit when he was ahead. Bad day. And then secondly, it just really seems like Jesus needs a hug. You know what I'm saying? Like, I just look at it, it's like, Jesus, Peter's one of your friends. He's just trying to protect you. He, 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 you call him Satan? It seems a little bit over the top. But I think about it, and if I think about it from Jesus' perspective, he's got all these people, hundreds of people who are following him. They all want a revolution. And he's got the power to make that happen. But what they need is a sacrifice. What they need is to be reconnected to God. And the only way for... That, that to happen is for Jesus to die. And I wonder if, as Peter was rebuking him, I wonder if Jesus' mind flashed back to a time where he was alone in a desert. And he was tired, he was hungry, he was lonely, and he's in the middle of his wrestling match with God. And he's tempted by Satan, who said, you don't have to die, Jesus. You can have the whole world. Just, just give up, just take the easy way out, just submit to me, and you don't have to feel any pain. And so I wonder if in this moment, Jesus is reminding himself, just as much as Peter, that he's got to take a harder road. But you've got to feel for Peter here. You see, for a couple years, he's been following Jesus around, and he's been living the dream, and then for the first time, he realizes that following Jesus might look differently than he thought it would. You've had that moment, haven't you? It's the executive... He realized that he couldn't lead his family and work the hours that he was working, and so he sat down with his boss and talked about balancing his schedule better, and he got fired. And he trusted that God would provide another job, but it's been months and there are still no prospects in sight. It's the 35-year-old woman who wants to be married more than anything But she knew that her current relationship, it didn't line up with what God said was best. And so she broke it off. And she trusted that God would provide the right man in her life. But it's been two years and she's still alone. And what I would love to do right now is just share another random example of another person. But right now I have to talk about me. It's my family. We prayed and we prayed and We prayed. And we put all of our trust in God, that he would do what was right, that he would show up, that he would take care of our family. My dad still died of cancer. Those moments make it harder for us to put our faith in God, don't they? I talked with you guys about this uh, two years ago. I remember when I found out my dad had cancer, I was thinking, come on, God, my dad's a pastor, He's given up everything for you. He's sacrificed so much for you. And and you do this to him? God, what are you thinking? Do your job better. And throughout this whole process, like I was trying to have faith. Remember, I'm like a pastor. I I'm trying to believe. And then my dad died. I was trying to trust God through it. I was trying to see what he was doing through it all. I was trying to believe. But as much as I was trying, as hard as I was trying to convince myself of that, here's what I felt at my core. That God wasn't listening. That God didn't care. That I couldn't trust him. And that he was not with me. I was trying my best, but, but something was wrong. But here's the thing. I, I was a husband to a wife who needed me to show up. I had two kids under three years old, and they needed their dad every day. I was a youth pastor of a youth group that needed their youth pastor. I didn't have time to think about it. I didn't have time to think about my feelings, okay? I just told myself that it would get better over time. It got worse. More and more, I never felt like God was with me. If God wasn't with me, like he said he would be, is he even there at all? And even if he is there, I don't like him very much right now. I didn't have time to think about all that, I told myself. All I knew was that I needed to be a better husband and if, if God's not with me, and if God's not going to help me do that, then i got to figure that out on my own. And so I would read all the books about trying to be a better husband, and i tried to put that into practice. I knew that I needed to be a better dad, and so I, I tried to interview different dads who were great around me and try to figure out what they did and see how I could emulate them with my kids. I needed to be a better pastor, and so I listened to podcasts and sermons and tried to do whatever I could to be a better teacher and a better leader. And I kept on piling up all these different things on top of me to make myself better, but inside I felt empty. I had no confidence, I had no passion, I had no hope, and it all stemmed from this fact that I had a dying faith, and I had this moment of clarity about three months ago, four months ago, I can't be a pastor and not believe in God anymore, like those two things are incompatible, you know, like unless you work at a weird church in Boulder, you know, like... And if you got a problem with that, just email Scott, okay? He would (laughs) love to read your email, all right? I I just remember thinking, like, I I need God to show up, even though I didn't feel like he was with me, even though I felt like four years ago when I needed him to show up the most, I felt like he didn't. I need God to show up or I, I can't do this anymore. And I went to this crucible retreat back in May in, up in Como. And, lo, and like Jim said in, in the video, this is not parade all the guys who have gone to the, the crucible retreat to tell you about it. This is just us saying, you, you got to get to a point where you say, I'm going to knock down whatever is in my way to let God deal with me. I was talking with a friend of mine two nights ago, and he's talking about his wrestling match with God. was having this moment about a month ago saying, like, God, I don't, I, I don't know if I can do this anymore. If you don't show up, I think I'm tapping out. I, I, I think I'm done. So I don't know what that is for you. I just know that for me, it, 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 was, it was going to this crucible retreat up in Como, getting in a room with about 50 other men, and, and this is our chance to tell, our, tell the truth about what we're wrestling with. And I knew exactly what I was wrestling with, okay? But here's the thing. My bosses are in the room. And if I tell the truth about what I'm wrestling with, I'm pretty sure I don't believe in God anymore. I mean, they're going to fire me. And here's the other thing, I, I don't have a backup plan, okay? Like, I want to be a pastor my whole life. I have no transferable skills, okay? Like, the, the only job I've had outside of ministry is working at Waffle House for six months. I don't want to go back there, okay? Like, don't send me back there. I, I didn't know what I was going to do. But it was more than that, too. There was the work part of it. My whole life everybody seen me as the, the guy that always wanted to be the pastor and always would be the pastor. And I'm gonna tell the guys in this room and then have to tell everybody else this pastor doesn't believe in God anymore? Jim's gonna be in that room. Jim baptized me in the ocean when I was in his youth group and we were on a youth group trip. Jim was at that stupid preaching uh, competition. Jim brought me out here to Colorado and he trusted me with a campus full of people. And I'm going to tell him that I don't believe in God anymore. He's going to be disappointed. He's going to be betrayed. He's going to be mad. And I don't blame him. I'm going to have to go home and tell my wife, who married a pastor. It's not, it's not who I am anymore. I, we haven't talked about this for three years, but I don't, I don't believe in God anymore. And more than that, like, I don't have a job anymore. We're gonna have to figure out how to how how to raise our family, how to provide for our family. I'm gonna have to, I'm gonna be a disappointment to my mom. I'm going to be a disappointment to my brothers who always knew me growing up as being the pastor boy. All the churches that I worked at west right now, I'm going to be a disappointment to all these people who trusted me and realized that they can't trust me anymore. And top it all off, if my dad was here, he'd be disappointed in me too. He would. So what I was doing is I was prepping a fake answer. Okay, I'm like I am not sharing this I can't share this I I had this line in my head and I'm ready to deliver it And all I had to do was put on pastor boy face one more time just like I've been doing my entire life And I had this realization Jesse you can tap out now you can give a fake answer You'll keep your job But you will not find what you came here looking for Or you can go all in You can wrestle until the bell sounds, you can be completely honest, and yeah, they might fire you, but you might also get what you came looking for. So I looked down, I said in my head, screw it, and I got up in front of this group of men, and I said, what do you do when you're a pastor? You're pretty sure you don't believe in God anymore. Now what I wanna do right now is I wanna go back to Peter real quick because if I, I think if you hang with me, I think you're gonna notice some parallels between our stories. What we're gonna do is we're gonna fast forward a few months in Peter's life. At this point, Jesus knows he's gonna be betrayed and handed over to the authorities to be crucified and he knows what's gonna to happen to Peter too. And so look what he says in Luke 22, verse 31. He says, Simon, Simon, and that's just another name for Peter. Behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat But I have prayed for you and that your faith may not fail. When you have turned again, strengthen your brother's. So Jesus tells Peter that he's going to go through this painful sifting process in the next few days. And back then in their culture, that's like a really familiar uh, metaphor. What they would understand is they would put all their wheat and everything that came with it in this container, and they'd shake it extremely hard. And it was designed so that the wheat kernels, all the things good for cooking would stay in there. But then all the chaff and all the useless stuff, it would fall out the bottom. So Jesus is telling Peter, Peter, you're about to be tested. Peter, you're about to be sifted. You're about to go into the ring. And Satan's plan for you is that you'll tap out. That your faith will fail, but I pray that you'll hold on, and I know you will. But just a few hours later, Jesus is betrayed and handed over to the authorities. Peter sees it, and he realizes the dream that he's been working for for the last three years, it's dead. And people start to recognize that Peter is one of the apostles. And they start recognizing him and asking him about it. And three different times, he denies even being a part of the apostles. And he denies even knowing who Jesus is. And the Bible says that the third time that he denies even knowing Jesus, Jesus is being led by the authorities right past Peter. And he sees him. And they make eye contact. Peter drops his head. He runs away. He weeps. At that moment, I mean, Peter failed, right? What Jesus prayed for, Jesus didn't get what he asked for. I mean, at least that's how it was looking to me. I wasn't really having a tr- trouble with, with, with this section of Scripture. But then I started looking into what Jesus said, and the word that he used there for fail is this interesting word in the original language that the Bible was written in, in the Greek. And it's this word, eclipsos. The word we get for that is the word eclipse. And here's the thing about eclipses. There are two different types of eclipses. And I know you didn't come here for an astronomy lesson, but just kind of just hold on here for just one second. There's a partial eclipse and there's a total eclipse. You see, a partial eclipse is when the moon covers up part of the sun, and a total eclipse is when the moon covers up all the sun. It covers up the sun completely. So here's my question. If the moon covers up 99.9% of the sun, is it a total eclipse? No. No. It's not. Here's the other thing about an eclipse. Even if it looks like a total eclipse, the sun's still there. You just can't see it because of what's in front of it. But you just give it some time and you'll be able to see the sun again soon. And so let's take this and let's apply it to Peter and to Peter's faith. Did he fail? Yeah, partially. But was it a total failure? I mean, maybe to Peter, maybe to everybody around Yeah, it looked like a failure. He looked like a failure. But what Jesus saw, Jesus saw the shred of light. Jesus saw the tiny shred of faith, and he knew that that was still there, even though some darkness would move in front of it for a while. It might look like a man who lost his faith, but give it time. He saw a man that wasn't too far gone. Partial failure? Sure. Total failure? Absolutely not. A pastor named Timothy Keller, he says this, it says, it is not the amount of our faith, but the object of our faith that saves us. That's too good. Your faith right now might be so weak that you're not even sure that it's there anymore. That doesn't mean it's totally gone. Back to how I've been wrestling with God, how I've been trying to deal with my lack of faith. I had read all the books about the reasons that we have for God being there. And while everything that I read, it it made sense up here, I, I just could not connect the dots between here and right here. You know what I'm saying? I would wake up early in the morning, I'd read my Bible, I would try to feel something. But at the end of the day, every day, I felt nothing. I would take an off day and I would go up in the mountains alone just trying to meet with God up there. And it felt like every single time he didn't show up. I just started feeling like it's a waste of time. And I remember having no reason to believe that anything else would work. I was tapped out. I said, I'm giving this one last shot. This is my last shot before I go home and I tell a lot of different people a lot of things they're gonna be way disappointed with me in. So I got back out on that mat and I started wrestling. And I took off pastor boy Jesse face and I was just me. And I put my finger in God's chest. I said, God, I trusted you. God, what are you doing here? My, I miss my dad. Why would you do this to me? Where have you been? I put my shame out there. All my life, I try to be this perfect husband and this perfect dad and this perfect pastor, just like my dad would have wanted, just like everybody expected me to. Guys, this is not who I am. I don't even know if I believe in God anymore. What I am, I'm a disappointment and a failure. And if I would just be a little bit better, then I wouldn't have any of these problems. And it was kind of amazing in this moment I got to have some men show me if my dad was still here. I said, Jesse, you've been a dad. You're a dad. You understand this. If your dad was still here, he would not be disappointed in you. He would be proud of a son that showed up He would be proud of a son that showed up. And for the first time in years, I felt the voice of God again. And he was telling me the exact same thing. He was helping me see that that with him with me, with God with me, I could actually have confidence. And I had real confidence. I didn't need to be a good dad. I didn't need to be a good husband. I didn't need to be a good pastor. I was a good husband and I was a good dad and I was a good pastor because with Jesus inside me and God with me, that's who I was. I had, I had hope again, and I had passion again, and I had my faith back. And what the Bible says in Ezekiel 36, 26, says I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I'll remove this heart of stone, and I'll give you a heart of flesh. I was living proof of that. I couldn't let anybody else know, but I had a heart that was numb and cold and empty. It wasn't useful for anything, and it was like in a moment, God took that old heart away, and he gave me a new heart and a new spirit, and I had been wrestling with God for years, What I realized is through that time on the mat, God had refined me. He had sifted parts of me that I couldn't be who I am today without going through that process. What that doesn't mean is it doesn't mean that all my questions are answered. It doesn't mean that I totally understand everything that happens. It just means that now I know I can trust the one that I was wrestling with. I can trust him. I know it'll make sense someday. But here's what I know a lot of you in the room are are thinking Jesse, that's great for you. That's good for you. But what about me? You got through the sifting. You got through the crucible. You, you, you got through your wrestling match with God. But what about me? I'm still in the middle of it. I'm so pretty, sure, pretty sure I don't believe in God, and there's no sign that he's going to show up in my life. What about me? So I started thinking about that as I was writing. If I could... Go back just four months ago to where I was at. If I could go back and have coffee with me and sit down, what would I tell myself just three months ago? You know what I would not say? I would not say try harder. There were a couple times where I let people in just a little bit, never the whole truth. I wouldn't tell him the whole truth, but after I told him, I had some people tell me what amounted to "You just need to try a little bit harder." I look back at him and I'd say, "Thank you," because I'm a pastor, you know. But I didn't mean to say the word "thank" there. I meant to say another word. It ended with the K two. Try harder. I've been trying as hard as I can, and it's not doing anything. I'm at capacity, and I don't know what to do now. The best advice you have for me is try harder. I've been trying harder, and God's not showing up, and it's not working. So if the best advice I'm, if that's the best advice that I'm going to get, then I'm not telling anybody else. I'm not going to tell my wife. I'm not going to tell my friends. I'm not going to tell the people at work. I just am going to have to do this on my own. I would not tell you. to. You just need to try harder. What I would do, I would have pointed myself to this story that this whole series is based off of, the story of when Jacob wrestles with God all throughout the night, even though he doesn't even stand a chance, but all through the night, he keeps on holding on to God. And in the morning, it says this, it says, Jacob said, I will not let go of you until you bless me. I would have told myself the same thing that I'll tell you right now. If you're dealing with this, keep holding on even though it doesn't feel like it's working, and even though you feel like your strength is failing, keep holding on. Keep holding on. How do you do that? I want to share three things with you. First, keep praying. I'm embarrassed to say this is the first thing that dropped off in my life. Prayer has always been so hard for me all my life because it's so hard for me to slow down enough to make time for it and it is so hard for me to be quiet long enough to hear anything. And then four years ago, when I felt like God wasn't listening, when I prayed for my dad, I felt like he wasn't listening to me at all. And if God's not listening, then why pray? And so I quit. I wish I wouldn't have done that. I would have told myself to keep praying even when it doesn't feel like it's working even when you don't see the results that you want, even when you pray for something and it doesn't happen, I mean, even when you don't hear or feel or experience anything, keep on praying. Knowing what I know now, I know that God was listening. I know that He was still speaking. I just shut Him out. I keep praying. Number two, I'd say slow down. One of the worst things that I did was I told myself that I was too busy to think about my eroding faith. I told myself that being a husband, being a father, and being a pastor, it took up too much time, and I I would figure out what was wrong with my faith when life slowed down. Here's the thing about life. You know this. It never slows down. Life never slows down unless we intentionally slow it down. So while I was saying I needed to give all my time to being a better husband and being a better dad and being a better pastor, what ended up happening was my wife got a worse husband. My kids got a worse Dad. My church got a worse pastor. If I could go back, I would have told myself to slow down. That my relationship with God, that my faith, it comes first. And if it's struggling, then everything else in my life is going to be a struggle too. And I would have taken whatever time it took until God would deal with me, even if it didn't happen right away. Slow down. Third thing I would have told myself, keep showing up. See, I think we have this tendency that once we have a question or once we have a doubt about God, we start to live like he's not there. And once we're wondering, once we're not sure he's there anymore, we kind of let our life go off the rails and we start self-sabotaging. So if you're in this place right now and your faith is really struggling, I want to encourage you, keep showing up. Keep showing up at church. Keep showing up in your relationships. Keep being a good husband or a good wife. Keep being a good father or a good mother. Keep doing what you know a follower of Jesus should do. And it sounds a lot like I'm telling you to just try harder, but, 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 but it's different, okay? This is not trying to earn anything. This is not trying to do all these things so that uh, God will come meet with you or so that you can meet with God. It's just way more practical than that, okay? It's that one day, one day you'll see that God's been there all along. And if along the way, in between now and then, you have blown up your life and you've gone off the rails, there's gonna be so many pieces that need to be picked up on the other side. Like Ben said last week, keep showing up out of the hope that one day God's going to let you off the mat, that you're going to wrestle with your God, and you're going to come out on the other side a new person. This is one of the things that I'm so grateful for, that God kept my life on the rails while I was struggling to believe in Him. While I was even letting go of Him, He was holding on to me. 1 John 3.20 has been this huge encouragement to me. It says this, it says, If our hearts condemn us, well, we know that God is greater than our hearts. And he knows everything. Here's what I know about that God. He has not given up on himself. Like Ben said last week, he is the great I am. He is capable of anything. And that's one of the things that's been so humbling for me over the last couple months. That the God of the universe, he could use anyone that he wanted. When I had given up on God, he still didn't give up on me. He's still been using me the whole time. I want to share one last story with you. It's in John chapter 21. This is in Peter's life. Jesus has died and Peter, the, the dream's dead. And so Peter, he goes back to his hometown. He's got no Messiah anymore. He's got no dream, no revolution to fight for. And so he's just living as a fisherman, hoping the last three years are a bad dream. Then he hears that Jesus, he did what he said he was going to do, that he, he rises from the dead. And Peter is probably thinking, well, that Jesus did what he said he was gonna do. He proved that he is who he said he was. He rose from the dead. And I had a moment too that I proved that I was who I thought I was too. That I was a failure. That I was a disappointment. That I was the guy that runs away when things get tough. And you can read, the, the, read this story later today in John 21 if you want to. I'm just going to tell it to you. But Jesus, he shows up on a beach with Peter, and they start this conversation. And, and Jesus is the first person to start out the conversation on this walk that they're having. And he starts it with a question. Peter, do you love me? You've got to think this is the first time that they've had a conversation. This is the first time that they've met since since Peter has denied him three times. And I bet Peter's just looking at the ground like, yeah, 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 Lord, I, know, I, I love you. And Jesus says, take care of my lambs. And that just means kind of take care of my people. Take care of the people who are following me. Jesus asks the second time, Peter, do you love me? You got to think that Peter, he, he's feeling just kind of, just all the shame coming up based on what he did. And he's like, yes, Lord, I, 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 I love you, I love you. Jesus says, take care of my sheep. Take care of my people. Third time, three denials, three questions. Peter, do you love me? The Bible says that this time Peter, he's hurt because he, Jesus asked him a third time, do, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know everything. You, you know that I love you. you. You know I love you. Jesus says, take care of my sheep. And as I, as I was reading that story and thinking about that story, here's the first thing that I think of. Jesus is dealing with a deserter here. He's dealing with a guy that can't be trusted. And all this guy has to do to be reinstated is tell Jesus that he loves him. I mean, that's just shocking. But there's also some, some, something else going on underneath the surface of this story. You see, in the Greek language, they have a few different words that are all translated love into English. And these words for love, they're more descriptive and they got more meaning to them. And in this story, the two men are using two different words for love. One of the words they're using for love is the word agape. And if you've been to church for a while, you might have heard the word agape. It's the type of love that God has for his people. And uh, therefore, his people are trying to live that out in all their relationships with other people. One of my favorite Bibles is this kid's Bible I'll read to my, my kids at night called the Jesus Storybook Bible. And it describes agape love like this. Never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. It's kind of love that's all in. The other word for love that uh, they're using here is the word phileo. It's, it's where we get the name of the city, Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. It's love between friends. Definitely, it's not as intense as agape love. It's more like a fist bump type of love. You know, like if we are going to hug, we're going to add three pats to keep it from weird. You know, like that's phileo Phileo, it's kind of more, more friendship, not as intense. So let's look back at the story again. Jesus says, Peter, Peter, do you love me? He uses the word agape there. Peter, do you agape me? Are you all in? You all in? Peter looks back at him. He says, Jesus, I follow owe you. All in? Okay. We're friends, we're brothers. I'm, I'm not all in. You, you know that. Can you work with that? Second time, Jesus says, Peter, do you, do you agape me? Are you all in? you all in. Peter says, Jesus, I, I o you. Like, we're friends, we're brothers, like I, I, but that's as far as I can get. I mean, you know more than anybody that my love for you, it's not unbreaking. My love for you is not never stopping, that I can't get to all in. Can you work with that? Third time, what word do you think Jesus uses for love here? He says, Peter, do you o me? Peter says, yeah, I o you. What Jesus is saying, he's saying, Peter, I get it. You can't get to agape right now. You can't get to all in. You've still got some reservations. You've still got some questions. You've still got some doubts. You can't get to this place. Well, guess what? I'm coming to you. Do you o me? Because o is enough. Phileo is enough. That is enough. You are enough. I can work with that. I will work with that. You can read all throughout the rest of the Bible how Jesus did work with that. Now what about us? How does that translate to us if Jesus is asking us that question? How do we respond? Do we say, are we all in? Do we say, God, my faith is weak. My faith is small. Would you say like I said, I'm pretty sure I don't believe in God anymore. We, we gotta stop trying to fix ourselves. We gotta stop trying to say, well, I just need to try harder. I just need to be better. I just need to, to have more faith. Saying, I know I should believe in God. I know I should agape him, even though I don't. I mean, look at what Peter says. Peter over here, he doesn't say each time, Jesus, I should agape you. He's honest. He just says, I like oh, you. This is the best I've got. Can you work with that? And Jesus looks back at him and goes, Peter, That's enough. What you have is enough. I can work with that. Has anybody else in this room wrestled with this before? I mean, to all of us in this room, we're wavering back and forth between belief and doubt. To all of us in this room, we're tired because we're feeling like we're doing this all on our own and that God has never shown up and we need him to the most now. To all of us who haven't felt a connection with God in years, and we're ready to give up. I want you to know you're not alone. Keep holding on. Keep holding on. He can work with that. He will work with that. Keep holding on. You guys stand up. I'm going to pray and then we're going to sing. God. God, to uh, sometimes it's so hard because we you seem so distant and you seem so far away God, these times that we feel like we need you to show up more than ever God, it's, it feels like you're not there and maybe some of us in this room, we walked in and what we just needed to know more than anything, and you knew this, you just needed that we needed to know that we're not alone God, I, you know what we need today and God I thank you so much for the way that you showed up in my life. God, I was ready to give up. I was ready to tap out and you showed up and you changed me. I thank you for that. And God, we're about to sing this song. And God, sometimes we sing these songs and and we sing them because we believe them and we've experienced them and we say, yeah, that's what God did. I believe this, but God, there are other times that we sing songs and it's not because we believe them. We haven't experienced them. It's because we hope that they're true. We hope that you'll show up like they say that you will. We need you to show up like we're singing that you will. We sing songs because we just need this to happen. and We're hoping, desperate for it to happen. So God, as we sing today, your Bible says that you, the Bible says that you, you are greater than our hearts. You understand us. As we sing this song, you know where we're at and you know what we need. God, will you show up Will you give us what we need in this moment? Will you give us hope? God, we love you. We are trying to trust you. We need you. We're going to worship you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.